If you are a lover of nature, you probably have a favorite scene, maybe a favorite place. Um, you probably have a favorite sight. You might even have a favorite smell. There is something about God's creation that reminds us of his beauty and draws us to himself. Um, it, it reminds me of Psalm, uh, I think it's 24, that says, creation is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it declares God's infinite worth. Um, so I, I'm, I try and be a runner, not because I love running, but because I love eating. And I need to work at breaking a sweat in my life, in, in this stage of my life. And uh, so I run um, uh, a little bit every week. And uh, I have different times that I prefer running. This would not be one of them in the kind of the, um, the humid months. But if you get me in the fall and spring, uh, the, the, those just feel like a little closer to God. And for me, I don't listen to tunes or anything. I, I usually listen to messages. And, and it's kind of a spiritual thing for me. There's some dialogue between me and God. Um, but we have in our neighborhood a six-mile loop that I can run, and part of it includes going up and down a really steep hill by the name of Hillbilly. So that ought to tell you, uh, it's not for the faint of heart, and especially if it's terribly humid out, you feel like you're running up that hill carrying someone on piggyback because it's just, it's, it's rough. Uh, but we have this and I remember running this spring as things were coming into blossom, and one of my favorite smells uh, is this jasmine smell, you know, when it just starts kind of blooming, and uh, it kind of interrupts you uh, in, a, in a way like, and there's two spots on my run that people have these jasmine bushes outside of their, their home, and it's like this long kind of going along their fence, and so I get to that point, and I'm usually thinking about something, or I'm listening to something, and I'm like, and it's like this divine interruption. I'm like, mm, yeah. And I like, and I like breathe deep as I'm going and, and it's fun. So I, I keep going. Well, here's the problem on this beautiful, glorious spring day. It was also Friday, which is trash day. And so, um, I, I, I run and, and, and it's within the first mile I hit the jasmine. I was like, this is great. Go all the way down and then down hillbilly. And it's, I get to hillbilly and, and kind of circle back up and I'm, I'm coming. I, I hit the second patch of jasmine, right? And, and now I'm being like, I'm cruising up and, and it's like slow motion, slow crawl. You can't sprint uphill, Billy. But the garbage truck, this big, green, slow, deathly smelling truck is now crawling up the hill with me. I can't outrun it. I don't want to stop. And so here's this garbage truck and it is ruining my run. It is ruining the glory of the spring morning. I had jasmine, no, I have filth and sulfur now. It, it was so gross and, and it's, it's not like all my neighbors are more vile than me. They've already been to our house. So I'm a part of the filth, right? Uh, but this truck was just kind of like, we were at the same gate, just the same pace going up the hill and I just wanted it to pass. And it didn't. It was like, come on. And so here's what I think. We live with a tension that is the beauty of God's creation, that is the, the promise of God's restoration. And yet we live also in the reality of the stinking humanity 
the things that feel broken that shouldn't feel broken, the things that feel unjust when it should be just. It's the things that make us go, where are you, God? What is it that's going on? And so tonight, I want to just um, talk about what it means to have a heart of worship, um, specifically this posture of worship that starts with the level of gratitude. And here's what I would simply say just by beginning, and if you want to take notes here tonight, I just want to give you some direction. There's some places you can fill out on your, your handout tonight. But the first thing I would say is if we keep waiting for everything to be right, for everything to be better, for everything to be brighter, we'll miss the good that we already have. There are times in my life where I am a really good critical thinker. I can think with great discernment. And then when, there are other times when I'm worn thin and worn out, when I've just got a critical spirit and I live with a spirit of complaint. Does this happen to you also? And so I wanna welcome you into the tension and not wrap a bow around and say somehow God solves it all. I wanna welcome you into the tension that says we live in the beauty of God's creation that is both being restored and is still being restored. You know what I'm saying? And so tonight there's a passage that, that really reflects a kind of gratitude that I, I feel like resonates and, and it's got some different feet or different shoes that we can put on. And it comes out of Luke chapter 19. Luke is an interesting writer. He's the one Gentile writer of the four gospels. So when Luke writes, he introduces things that the other Jewish writers don't introduce. Like he, as a Gentile, introduces Gentile relationship with God or a female or relationship with Christ. And so um, Luke is the only one that includes the story of the 10 lepers that Jesus comes upon and heals. Well, actually, they notice Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things out of this story, and I just want to call out. Um, and so if we can just look at those verses, it says, um, in, in beginning in verse 11, it says, it happened that as they made his way toward Jerusalem, he crossed the border between Samaria and Galilee, which is significant because Samaritans were the enemy. They were the despised ones. They were considered half-breeds in a very religiously and culturally pure mindset. And so these were less than, there was a kind of a, a degree, a, a caste system, if you will. As he entered a village, 10 men, all lepers, met him. They kept their distance because it was improper to be unclean and come into direct contact. So all of these people have been banished to this sort of concentration camp that of disease-ridden people. Um, and their voices calling out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So word has gotten back to them about Jesus the healer. He says, taking a good look at them, he said, now go and show yourselves to the priests. They went, and while they were still on their way, became clean. And one of them, when he realized that he was healed, turned around and came back, shouting his gratitude, glorifying God. He kneeled at Jesus' feet. Um, grateful. He couldn't thank him enough, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus said, where are there not ten healed? Where are the nine? 
Can none be found to come back and give glory to God except this outsider? Then he said to them, get up on your way. Your faith has healed and saved you. So I want to put ourselves into the shoes of a couple of different people. If you're Jesus, you put yourself into the shoes and going, I healed 10. Where are the other nine? If you've ever felt like some level of ingratitude, whether it be towards your kids or to a favor you've done or a check you've written, you kind of want some recognition or acknowledgement that I did that. Thank you very much. It's how we try and teach our kids to say, make sure you say thanks, which is a good starting point. But after a while, they should learn to just have gratitude on their own. But Jesus has what I think is a very realistic expectation, though he's not offended by it. But he's saying, where are the other nine, by the way? Now will you put yourself in the shoes of the, the, the other nine? I don't think it wasn't that they weren't grateful. I think that they were tremendously grateful, but didn't think to stop and say thanks and show a level of gratitude. Maybe it's because, well, he's a fellow Jew, I'm a fellow Jew, we're all in the same camp, we're all going to the same place. I don't even, he knows how grateful we are because we're going to worship him. I'll see him on Sunday. But put yourself in the, the shoes of the Samaritan, the one guy who comes back and expresses a level of gratitude. And he said he, he couldn't say how thank, thank him enough. And it says that his faith, had healed him. So all of a sudden it goes beyond gratitude to this salvation experience. This went from a physical healing to a spiritual healing. And so the first couple of observations that I would just simply make is that this offers a very pointed spiritual commentary with how we worship God in our lives. And the first observation I would simply make is nothing unifies like a common enemy. <laughs> Have you ever been to the DMV? Have you ever been to traffic school? Have you ever gone selected for jury duty? There is something that is the enemy of our schedule that just feels like the least profitable, productive use of my time. And, but there's this ragtag uh, assembly of, of people that you're like, I would never be in this class or in this jury, except for we all got summoned or we all had to renew our license or we all had to go to traffic school or something. And you're like, this is such a random group of people. Nothing unifies like a common enemy. And so here we have between Galilee and Samaria these enemies. And the only thing that they had in common was their disease and their stigma. But here's maybe the better observation. The more pointed one that I want to make is that Jesus is simply worthy of our praise and that God is in fact desiring of our worship. So when we talk about a rhythm of gratitude, it's about learning how to worship God, whether we're gathered for church or whether we're on our own in the office or at home or at the dinner table. There's a way to declare God's worth, whether we are together or whether we're scattered. And I think part of the posture of a worshiper starts with gratitude. So in verse 15 and 16, it says, one of them, when he reached, uh, when he realized that he was healed, and we don't even know, because you're supposed to go to the priest and, and be, be told that you are now ceremonially clean to be re able to reenter society. We don't even know if he kept going, but somewhere on the line, he realized that maybe he had digits that fell off or whatever the case might be, but he was healed. And I like to think that he stopped in his tracks to go, a miracle just happened. 
I have to go and express my praise. And so it says that he kneeled at Jesus' feet so gratefully and he couldn't thank him enough, but he was a Samaritan. So gratitude reminds us that God is the source, that even my effort is a gift. See, gratitude reminds us that God's ultimately the source. You think you earned something? Where did you get that, that, that energy, that strength? think, oh, I was afforded an education and I made the most of it. I was given a, a foot in the door in my company and I, I made the most of it. To which I would say, even our extra effort, our last and our next breath, it's all a gift. And what gratitude does is it reminds us of who's ultimately the source of all that we have and all that we are. This is why when we come together for worship, there should be some level of celebration, as well as some safety in confession. There should be some level of being able to want to bring praise to God because this is our original design and God just wants to remind us of the source of our lives. In Revelation um, chapter 19, there's an interesting passage that I stumbled across because I was reading this book that was kind of a, um, an, an expose, if you will, of the book of Revelation, which is kind of an unusual book. It, it, it has lots of symbolism. Um, but in Revelation chapter 19, there is this phrase that all of us are familiar with, but this is what surprised me. If we talk about the language of worship, or a language of gratitude, particularly to God, there's one word that really captures that. And if we were maybe an African-American gospel church, you might, but it might sound something like hallelujah. There might be a shouting out loud of this praise, hallelujah. And maybe some of you have said that in just a moment of extemporaneous praise, oh, thank God, hallelujah, which is basically the same statement. And so when you have that knee-jerk response for profound gratitude, do you sometimes offer a, thank God? Of course we do, because that's how we're wired, is to give praise and devotion to God, recognizing that he ultimately is the source. But here's what I find interesting. The word hallelujah only occurs four times in the New Testament, and, and, and four times within six verses of Revelation 19. That's it. You think this is kind of a profound word, like, you're going to find it all over. Actually, it's 22 times in the whole book, and the rest of it is just in Psalms. So the only other time we hear the declaration, hallelujah, is in these six verses, four times spoken in, in Revelation chapter 19. And, and what the word means is, praise the Lord. It's, it's, not, it's not hard. The Greek version of it would be alleluia, A-L-L, instead of the H-A-L. So, so what we have is um, this, this statement where it says we give praise, um, hallelujah, and then the word him or yah or jah, j-a-h or y-a-h. Um, and it's the short form of a sacred name of God. Now, if you're taking notes, write this word down. Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-Y or E-H, excuse me, Yahweh. And the name Yahweh was revered and so sacred to them, and so a lot of very strict Jews in the Old Testament wouldn't want to even speak the name of Yahweh, and so what they would do 
because it would violate the third commandment. Thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain. So instead of it, they would use a, a phrase, a much more generic phrase, Adonai, which is my Lord. So it's a personal statement, but they felt like it was much more reverent to say this. So what we have in these phrases is, is this picture of reverence being spoken of. So it's to praise him, which is where we get the word Yahweh. To bring praise, to declare praise, to thank God. And so... Um, Jews would often substitute that word, but when we're using it here in this worship, we're uttering the sacred name, that is gratitude to God. So I want to read this passage. Now what I've done, I want to make this kind of a call and response because I want us to be able to speak the name of God in praise, and so where you see it in yellow, go ahead and join in with me. I heard a sound like a a, a mass choir in heaven singing. There you go. Um, you can even get some intonation going and feel it, you know. Um, the salvation and the glory and the power of God's, his judgments, true. His judgments, just. He judged the great whore corrupted, uh, who corrupted the earth with her lust. Then, more singing. The smoke from her burning billows up to the high heavens forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four animals fell to their knees and they worshiped God on his thrones, praising, amen, yes, bring it. From the throne came a shout, a command, praise our God, all you, his servants, all you who fear him, small and great. And then I heard the sound of the mass choirs, the sound of the mighty cataract, the sound of of stirring thunder, bring it, bring it home. There you go. The master reigns, our God, the sovereign, strong. Let us celebrate, let us rejoice, let us give him the glory. The marriage of the lamb has come. His wife has made herself ready. She was given a bridal gown of bright and shining linen, uh, and the light is the righteous and the linen is the righteousness of the saints. It's this beautiful picture, this metaphor of the bride of Christ coming down. So then the question becomes is, what are they giving praise to God for? Except that now here, the risen Christ is being shown as the one who's now on his throne, that his reign has begun. Now this again is the tension we live with, because if we read the New Testament, we understand, because we are Kairos people, and we understand Jesus came with an announcement that said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And we live with the tension that says heaven is not just something that happens when we die, but heaven is here and now. So God, ever since Genesis 3, has been trying to repair and restore creation when sin entered the world. But when Jesus comes, he says, and with this picture you have out of John's revelation, that God is now on the throne and his reign has begun. So the kingdom of God is here and now. And yet, we still run with the stench of humanity in our nostrils. We run with the brokenness of a world that, that, that is not actually what God intended in the beginning. Does that feel like a relatable tension? So God's on his throne. His promises are true. We know that he's already conquered the grave. We know that he's conquered death. We know how this story ends. And yet we live with the tension that the world is still fallen and broken. Yet 
we as citizens of heaven can be responsible for ushering in heaven on earth moments and maybe replace them for hell on earth. Just this week, I, I know some of you are dealing with hell on earth. Um, and it's just a broken heart. It's just watching loved ones make destructive choices, loved ones be sick, loved ones... Um, I, I sat with someone whose husband tried to commit suicide on Monday, and, and you know, you're just... There's just pain. There's just deception. There's just hopelessness. And yet we're supposed to believe that God's on his throne? Yes, his promises are true, and we know how this thing ends in the end. So what I think is gratitude is like a discipline. It's like a muscle that just needs to be exercised because if we don't exercise it, you know what comes out? Constant complaint. So if our, the tenor of our voice sounds more like criticism and if it sounds like sarcasm and if it sounds like condescension and snarky, um, it can actually prevent us from worshiping God. It can prevent gratitude. Um, so let me just illustrate some of the things I've been going through this week uh, because uh, I've been having fun with walking a mile in people's shoes and trying to understand. I, I, had, friend with, I had lunch with a single friend this week, um, and this is a conversation that I've had several times. And the rhythm that came to me out of this first one was compassion. And it wasn't pity, it, it, but it was an, a, a deeper understanding. Bjorn, can you go to the next slide, please? Uh, of a friend who remains single. And as we're having the single conversation, it's not single by desire, it's single by just her life's situation. But so many of the, and, and again, this isn't just one person, this is several conversations I've been having. It's, it's sitting at a table with a bunch of people who end up spending an hour and a half talking about their kids, including me. And it makes me feel, I put myself in their shoes, and there's a level of compassion. Again, it's not pity, but it's understanding what it means to be the body of Christ and walk in her single shoes. How does that feel? I feel like God's trying to teach me something, and it's the rhythms being God's transformational way. It's a gentle reminder that my life stage is unique to me but I need to make accommodations. And so one of the things we've said is, we wanna be an extended family who lives on mission, an extended family of faith who makes room for people at whatever life stage are, and we seek to find what's common among us and find deep fellowship, just, even though we're not in the same life stage. Let me show you another one. Um, this is a group of guys that I've started uh, a mentoring group with, and. Um, I, I love their enthusiasm. I love their questions. I appreciate their desire, but if I had to attach one, it would be apprenticing because there's something in our lives that we need to always be looking to f find people who are further along in their journey, and we also need to be stewarding what we have experienced in Christ and be giving it away. And so whether it be my own kids or these group of men, I wanted to be able to have an intentional mentoring time with them. Bill and Connie Nelson, I remember apologizing to Connie one day because every time I got with them, uh, I, I felt like I was interviewing them. 
um, because I need, needed people who had been married longer than me and had raised kids longer than me and they turned out. And, and so there, there, there was something about having people who have just done something well and done it longer than you. And, and, and I'm always constantly looking for that. I have another group of folks that I've started meeting with and it's just a, a big encouragement because they come um, with profound um, humility. And even though I'm the youngest one at the table, I feel like the Lord has um, given us such a, a wonderful chemistry to be able to talk about what it means to give away or impart a living faith. I think I have one more that I took uh, and this comes um, actually back in May. I knew I was going to be doing this series, and I had visited um, those feet. You probably recognize, but I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, is Ashley Gilbert, because in May, Ashley had this planned C-section, and um, uh, it was their second child, and it was like business as usual. We've, we've done this before, and then within minutes, um, their their son Riggins wasn't breathing and uh, came out what seemingly was a really healthy boy. He was over 10 pounds and um, it had been a healthy pregnancy. Next thing you know, he's down at Dell Children's. Um, she's stuck at, um, at Seton Northwest or St. David's. Um, and, um, you know, cause she had a C-section, she couldn't get away for the next three and a half days. And I visited the hospital a couple of times. And this was after, um, after he had been there and, and for the first three and a half days, he sat in a cooling bath with his body temperature at 92 degrees, basically blue and shivering, sedated. And as a parent, I'm feeling like, like that's, that's the most helpless feeling in the world. And this isn't even my child, but I, I visited Riggins as he was just kind of shivering and with every kind of wire hooked up to him. And so I began praying and I pulled out my oil and, and anointed him. And we gathered together and, and prayed, Laurel and, and Brad and I, and um, I just felt so helpless, both as a pastor and as a parent and as a friend. I've known them for years. And all I could do was just pray a prayer of faith. But then to see some of the other people start and rally around, whether it be in prayer or whether it be in meals and in support and in care. And then God began to turn and they had MRI and, well, we're still waiting for Riggins' first day back to church, but he's doing really, really well. And they couldn't find signs of anything. They, they, they believed that it was about 90 seconds where he had lost oxygen. But when it first came out, I had heard four minutes. And so when you start hearing this, and I sat at her feet, I said, this is gonna sound really weird, but it looks like your toes are painted. They look nice enough. Would it be okay if I take a picture of your feet? <laughs> She just smiled. I think she knows me well enough. And I had brought cinnamon rolls, so I, I had some leverage. I said, oh, this brought me so much gratitude with a, a, a new mother sitting in a NICU unit um, with a son still hooked up to a lot of things, but having been through the worst of it. And my heart was so full of praise and gratitude. See, I have to practice gratitude so that my heart can be given more to God in worship. And worship, again, more than when the singing's out, whether you're a singer or a non-singer, it has more to do with the attitude of our heart and being able and willing uh, and quick to give praise to God. And so um, in uh, gratitude, I think, is a choice then that is unrelated to circumstances. 
that's a hard one for me to state because so much of what I express is because I get my way or I like how things turned out. But imagine gratitude as, as unrelated to circumstances. And the reason I say it that way is because gratitude doesn't alleviate pain, but it fills the cup that is our life so that when pain occurs, we still can be people of hope. Have you found someone who just has a kind of an unshakable faith? It's probably because gratitude and hope transcend the circumstances of their lives. One other thing that I would simply say is this, when we talk about moments of despair, the Hebrews, like I said, wouldn't want to speak the name of God, but they had this phrase where I told you earlier to spell out Yahweh, cancel out, just scratch out where the vowels are. And they believed that God was as near as your breath. There was such a reverence for God so that the name Yahweh was the closest thing to what it sounded like to breathe or at least to sigh. So when you feel the pain, when you feel the distance, when you feel the discord, when you feel the stench of humanity rising in your nostrils, consider where is God as near as your next breath. What a picture of the kind of intimacy we can have with the creator of the universe. But I, again, I say that this kind of takes a, a little bit of getting used to. Um, in fact, when the disciples asked Jesus, how should we pray? And he would say, well, begin praying. And, and he taught what, what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. And I don't know if you remember, maybe some other time we'll have a chance to unpack the aspects of the Lord's Prayer. But we talk about our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed is a statement of worship. It's a statement of reverence and praise. But then he gets to the point where he says, give us this day our daily bread. Our daily bread. If you're a Hebrew and central to the Hebrew understanding is your salvation, your deliverance, whether you were there or not, was from slavery into the promised land. And so when Jesus, the new Messiah, comes and he says, he's the new Moses, and he says, pray for your daily bread. That resonates with you culturally as well as spiritually because that is so central to your identity as a follower of God. And so if you think about what happened right after they got through the Red Sea, they're on the other side, and shortly after, their liberation from slavery was really short-lived because what did they start to do? Grumble, complain. We had it better in Egypt. We might as well just stay. At least we had meal. What are we going to drink? What are we going to eat? You brought us out to the desert. And what does God provide? But manna. And what does God say with great divine wisdom? Take enough for today and today alone. There will be no stockpiling. There will be no accumulation. There's not going to be kind of any hoarding going on. He said, take enough for today. Why? Because that keeps our hearts attuned. Because 
if we have just enough, we remain sensitive to God's leading, to God's spirit. If we have just enough, it keeps us aware of the source. But if we have reserves, if we have excess, does it not start to feel like we're good? I've got my pantry. I don't need God to be my physical daily bread. No, really? And he wants to court us into it. Now, here's what gets really interesting about this. Manna was nothing that had ever been on the Hebrew diet before. This was brand new. It had never even been an Egyptian kind of bread. This was something that was introduced as if the source of, the source of life was saying, I'm doing a new work. This is a new chapter in your life. And so manna literally translates, get this, in Hebrew, meaning it's a question. What is it? which you could argue this was the original who's on first. They pick it up in the desert and they're like, what is it? And they're like, it's what is it? I know, I just asked the same question. It's like, I know, what is it? Taste it. Well, what is it? I know. It's what is it? I mean, this is who's on first all over again. Well, actually, for the very first time. What God does is he shows up and he answers their question in a really tangible way. See, God provides them and us with a daily question that I think we're supposed to digest as we learn to orient our lives around him. And we, like the Israelites, didn't, don't always have an appetite for God. But despite living with constant provision, the people of God also lived with a constant complaint and it ultimately kept them out of the promised land. Those 40 years, a constant complaint, and yet they were created to declare God's worth, to be a testimony of who he is. And so as we encounter undeserved gifts or oversized obstacles, as we encounter pure joy or life's challenges, um, I think we need to consider God's promises and his daily provision invites us to simply ask the question, what is it? And God doesn't want us to be so comfortable or, or so complacent that we never quit humbly seeking a trusted source. I just want to close with this message or this story. It was several years ago. I was with, um, I had this fun history with this couple, um, been a part of their premarital, then mentoring, uh, you know, couples mentoring with them, uh, their wedding, uh, but they had, they had had some hard times. It was a second marriage for him, so he had a couple of kids, and uh, uh, one day they caught me after church, and um, they'd had a couple of kids together that didn't, it, they weren't easy pregnancies. Um, health complications, he had, he had been unemployed for a while, for a long time. I had a friend that does some work in the mortgage and real estate industry that had renegotiated out their loan to the bank to keep them from filing for bankruptcy in chapter 11 and, and got them into a, like a affordable rental. Um, but I remember he stood with me after church and I knew what he was saying. And he looked at me with these very stern eyes and he says, we just found out that she's pregnant. And I don't know what we're gonna do. And I know exactly what that meant. Despite the fact that they have four beautiful, healthy kids, it was too overwhelming to think about this. And so I said, um, we need, let's, let's meet, let's talk, because let's not go into it here. 
And I sat with them that week and, um, and began to recount the faithfulness of God. You know, so much of scripture, the, the, the Lord reminds the Israelites, don't forget that you yourselves were slaves in Egypt. Don't forget that you used to be slaves. In other words, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the faithfulness of God. Don't forget your deliverance. Don't forget your salvation. Don't forget my provision. Don't forget. He reminds them to remember. And so all I did that day is, do you remember when you lost your job and we, we figured out ways to make ends meet? And, and we knew this guy and this guy because I had a history with them. I could recount the faithfulness of God as if, like I was the children of Israel. Don't you remember when God fed you out in the desert? Don't you remember my friend that got you and, and saved you from chapter 11 and, and foreclosing on your home? Don't you remember when I showed up and we prayed over your other daughter and, and, and she's healed, she's healthy. Like there's not anything wrong with her. And I just went through like about six or seven of these miraculous moments. And I'm saying, why would God stop being faithful now? I spent a two hour lunch advocating for life. And I left with maybe like a 90% assurance that I had made enough headway. But they were so overwhelmed at the notion of adding to this family. And I can't tell you what it was like on the last, on the day of her birth. Because they kept her. And she's beautiful. And she's in school now. And, and it was this miraculous thing to be able to remind them that God's been their daily bread and he's been a daily source of provision. And before they get too out in front of the curve and too much accumulation and too wealthy, just remember, give us this day our daily bread so that we can have an attitude of gratitude that expresses who the source is and where it all comes from in the beginning. Can I pray with you tonight? And as we go to the Lord in prayer, uh, uh, we, we want to pray a prayer. So I have some readers, and we're going to go through a reading tonight. Um, I want to just make this kind of a call and response. If you would just stand with me, we're going to make this our closing prayer. And something I like to do is um, <clears throat> I like to hear from you. I know some of you are carrying the weight of the world. Some of you, here, why don't you go stand next to me? You guys can just pass that mic around. And so um, they're going to read, and, and when we get to the part, uh, uh, we're just going to, there's a, there's a response part where it just says all, but, uh, and then I just want to maybe take some time to offer up a praise or, or, or a, a request, but let's just use this time to close our, our time together. Oh God, our Father, we remember at this time how the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among us. We thank you that Jesus took our human body upon him so that we can never again dare to despise or neglect or misuse the body since, it, since you made it your dwelling place. Lord, Lord we, we give you, you praise. We thank you that Jesus did a day's work like any other working man, that he knew the problem of living together in a family, that he knew the frustration and irritation of serving the public, that he had to earn a living and to face all the wearing routine of everyday work and life and living, and so clothed each common task with glory. Lord, Lord we, we give, give you, you praise. praise. 
We thank you that he shared in all happy social occasions, that he was at home at weddings and at dinners and at festivals in the homes of simple, ordinary people like ourselves. Grant that we may ever remember that in his unseen, risen presence, he is a guest in every home. Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that he knew what friendship means, that he had his own circle of friends whom he wanted to be with him, that he knew too what it means to be let down, to suffer from disloyalty and from failure of love. Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that he too had to bear unfair criticism, prejudiced opposition, malicious and deliberate misunderstanding. Lord, we give you praise. We thank you that whatever happens to us, he has been there before, and that because he himself has gone through things, he is able to help those who are going through them. Lord, we give, give you, you praise. praise. Help us to never forget that he knows life because he lived life and that he is with us at all times to enable us to live victoriously. This we ask for your love's sake. Amen. Amen. 